Welcome to the Payroll Podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and innovations in the world of payroll. I'm Nick Day, founder of JGA Recruitment, a specialist global payroll search firm. I'm also a qualified executive coach and a recognized Reward 300 member. And my goal for this show is clear. It's to bring you expert guests and payroll leaders who are driving this industry forward. From cutting edge technologies and trends to compliance, analytics, automation, leadership strategies, and more, we're going to cover it all on this show to help you to deliver accurate and timely payrolls across your organizations. So let's join together in raising the strategic profile of payroll worldwide. Grab your coffee or your favorite beverage, and let's get started. Well, let me just say welcome, everyone, to today's November edition of Payroll Question Time. Perfect timing, I'm sure, for all of you after the recent 2023 autumn statement. And as always, the devil is in the details. So today we will attempt to bring you the news and the key insights that will hopefully enable all of you payroll professionals to run accurate, timely and compliant payroll operations over this busy, festive period. Let's get into what's really impacting payroll right now from that statement. Well, we know the government autumn statement outlined a reduction of 2% in the standard rate of national insurance contributions. We're going to be talking about that because it takes effect from the 6th of January. Uh, it also appears to be good news for those who pay national insurance. But of course, does that mean there's enough time left for all of you wonderful payroll people to implement the changes or indeed for your software providers to do so? So stay tuned. We'll get into that as we go. Uh, of course, will it also mean for the employees who are part of salary sacrifice benefit schemes? Will there be a potential loss in NI savings? Will employers need to consider whether their salary sacrifice schemes are going to be impacted by the rise in national minimum and national living wages? And will more employers face national minimum wage breaches? Lots to get into. We've got car allowances and mileage payments and codes of conduct for early wage access. Lots to consider over the festive period. And of course, how can we do all of this and run a payroll and enjoy Christmas? So we're also going to talk about festive payroll cover. Now, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Nick Day. I'm the CEO of JGA Recruitment Group. We're a payroll specialist recruitment agency. We operate in the UK, in Europe, and now in the US as well. So we're helping clients all over the world, supporting them with their payroll talent requirements. Uh, I'm also a part of the Reward 300, been in this wonderful sector now for over two decades. Uh, that's probably enough for me for the moment. So I'm going to introduce you to our wonderful panel. Uh, I can see Andy. So I'm going to start with you, Andy, if you'd like to introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Yeah, um, Andy Nichols work for the pensions regulator, particularly on the automatic enrollment side. Background is payroll and really to help yourselves in the world of payroll understand pensions and its impact on on ourselves when you're running payrolls, etc. So, yes, Amazing. Andy's going to be the man talking to us about that consultation maybe a bit later if we've got time. Mm. And moving my left to right, we've got Karen Thompson. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I too am part of the Reward 300, I'm privileged to say. Uh, my day job is a UK payroll and employment taxes director for AAB, which is a global accountancy firm. And I'm very much looking forward to uh, having our debates on some of these topics today. Uh, but we can welcome you all to Simon Parsons. You just can't see him right now. So, Simon, if you can hear me, I wonder if you could introduce yourself. <laughs> Yeah, hi, I'm Simon Parsons, uh, struggling with the new tech today. Got a new PC a couple of weeks back. So I'm Director of Compliance Strategies at SD Works, also part of the Reward 300. I chair the BCS Payroll Specialist Group and IRENE, which deals with electronic exchange with government. 
and um, was on an HMRC call with the policy people this morning as a follow-up uh, in relation to some of the changes tomorrow. So interesting times. Amazing. And in the know, then, we hope, Simon. So you'll be getting lots of my questions then directed your way. But for today, we're going to be talking about, of course, the autumn statement, Christmas prep, holiday cover and pay, car allowances and mileage payments, code of conduct for early wage access. Uh, the latest Mesty Works, including a webinar I think everyone who's watching this should absolutely sign up for. It's all about transformation. It's all about payroll. It's completely free. Uh, and you get to hear my wonderful voice as I host that foundations webinar as well but we've got some excellent speakers on that so stay tuned for that we're gonna have a pensions update from andy and of course we'll try and cover as many hot topics or any questions we haven't quite managed to get through during the show at the end as well so let's dive into the most important subject for today which is of course the autumn statement but big headline news national insurance cut from 12 percent to 10 percent uh simon i'm going to come to you afterwards because you've been on the consultation karen what was your first uh, reaction to this news well, it's fantastic news for every individual who's paying national insurance. Uh, once again, my husband felt left out, seeing as he's now retired and doesn't have to pay it. Um, however, the timing of it, and again, I understand because we obviously we're now in a political world now. We've got a general election coming. So it seems to have gone out the window as to what can or cannot work for employers. Um what I'm disappointed about is that it is from the 6th of January, not so much because it's from the 6th of January. It's just, you know, we do like some time off. And Christmas, certainly in an accountancy firm, is normally a good time because nobody contacts you. So, you know, really, there's going to be a lot of pressure on our software developers, but not just, I mean, because it is a number change from 12 to 10, but it's actually getting it to us for those of us who are not cloud-based. You know, so if you don't have a cloud-based system, it's not going to happen just whizzing down a line somewhere. You're talking about actually getting software. And then, of course, with all due diligence, you've got the testing of it. So I've got this awful feeling that maybe my two-week break over Christmas isn't quite going to be a two-week break, selfishly. We're going to get to that. I started early. I'm sure you're not alone. I'm sure you're not alone with that feeling as well. How about yourself, Simon? You've been on the phone to the HMRC today. So what are, what are the, some of the implications of this change and what do we need to know as payroll professionals? Well, yeah, and there's, I guess there's an element of uh, it's a political decision on the timing. Um, you think this is uh, not a good move for certainly the software developer sort of point of view because you've just delayed other projects and inserted this in. Uh, lots of employers actually at the moment are into shutdown periods, so they won't take any update because they're coming into their Christmas peaks. And so they have um, you know, blackout time where nothing goes. So then you've got to start those relationships, uh, discussions with them to negotiate having the release in time. So I'm sure they'll want it. But actually, it's um, slightly lighter because they've made no impact on employer national insurance contributions. I'm sure the employers would have liked to have had a bit of a rebate too. But that means no impact on PSAs, no impact on P11DB, Class 1A, etc. They all stay the same. But there is a complication with directors' national insurance because, of course, directors are on an annual uh, national insurance. So there's a new blended rate of 11.5%. Well, I had to bring that up, actually, because I've been just in the forums, as you are, Simon, and looking at all the comments coming in. And I've seen lots of comments about two things. And I'm, I'm 
no surprise, of course, our experts have already picked up on both those elements. The one thing I was going to bring up was, is this going to make software developers incredibly busy? And of course, there's a, it's not just the changes bits that's important. It's the way that we communicate that to the people that we're, we're paying as well. There's a communication challenge in there. And I've seen loads and loads of stuff about the complications it might have for those that are responsible for processing directors NI. So is it just as simple as a blended rate or what do we need to consider from a payroll perspective in making sure that we get this right over the best of period? Well, to, to a certain extent, it is as simple as a blended rate if the director is still with you and being paid. But the impact point of the blended rate is the 6th of April 2023, not the 6th of January. So if you've had directors that have left and gone, they've now paid too much national insurance. So what are you going to do about it? So you're going to give them their refund. Or if you're not, how do they get their refund? Because the blended rate of 11.5% applies to the whole year. It's not like the rest of us that aren't directors to that extent who are getting periodic. And that impacts the alternate method directors as well. Because although the alternate method directors will benefit from going from 12 to 10 to 10, in March there is 11.5% recalculation because you're only alternate until the last point you pay them or the month they leave. Then how does that impact mid-year starters because they won't have had nine months of one and three months of another? Well, the answer is they're all on 11.5% this year. Well, interestingly and not surprisingly, we're getting quite a few questions coming already around this, which is fantastic. So we have the best audience in the world that joins this show. Uh, let's let's keep, keep it then on Directors NI for the moment. We've got uh, one in from Greer that says, how will Directors NI be, uh, how will Directors NI be calculated on an annual basis? Um, will it be calculated now? And also, if you have a lever in the next month, also who has had, oh, I've got to read this out again, hold on. Let me try and read this and make sense of it. How will Directors NI calculated on an annual basis be calculated now? And also, if you have a leave in the next month or so, who has had his NI calculated so far this year on annual earnings basis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you want me to try that one? So, if you can. Um, well, for payments up to uh, the 5th of January, you'll be operating 12% NIC calculation on them. You could potentially, if you're minded to, implement the 11.5% early, but it doesn't actually come into play until the 6th of January. But from the 6th of January, it's retrospective. So for their gross earnings accumulating from April to the point of that payment, the uh, national insurance contribution rate is 11.5%. So potentially they paid half percent too much, in which case they're entitled to it back. So it's right. The question on what do you do about levers? Yes, what do you do about levers? Because they have paid half percent too much. And just, um, I think you, you may have answered this, but just to be really clear for those that are watching, is the NI change from the 6th of January worked out on the payment date or when worked? Yeah, well, it's standard CWG2 rules. I think uh, Karen will go with this as well. Is the uh, rate applicable is the pay date, the, the contractual pay date. So if you're due to pay on the 5th, it's 12. If you're due to pay on the 6th, it's 10 or directors NI from the 6th. So it's all governed by the pay date. doesn't matter when they worked. Some people think, well, I worked in October, so they should be paying 12% because I paid it in January. If you paid it the 6th of January onwards, it's 10%. Yeah, I agree. It's period in which it's the, which, which you're paying. Super. And I've got an SD Works question that's coming from your favourite uh, guest. This is Ashley Dorman here for you, Simon. Will SD Works' system be configured for late December starters 
uh, NIC sp um, splits important as most employers pay early in December? Uh, well, <laughs> depends what you mean, Ashley. The if you're talking about the drop in the rate, it's applicable to the pay date. So if you had a late starter that's missed the December pay and they're paid in January, the 10% rate applies to December and January because it's still judged on the same CWG2 basis point of payment. So you could actually say you might have a bunch of people who don't want to be paid in December because they'll get an extra 2% next month. Uh, that's the reality of uh, when things happen. So if you uh, first payday is January and that includes money from December and January, you do two months contributions, new rate, 10%. There isn't a 12 and a 10, it's 10. But if you pay December, it's 12. January, it's 10. So it's all, um, I can say, the luck of which side of the coin uh, uh, lands, heads or tails, really. Okay. Well, let's move on then a little bit from the uh, the NI piece. We've got obviously lots of lots was discussed in the autumn statement. We've got tax tax cuts. We've got uh, I've saw some stuff in the chatter, uh, the social channels about an uh, increase requirements for information potentially needed to be needed on an FPS, such as actual hours worked, and a few questions around that. Um, and there's been updates to benefits as well. So maybe I'll come back to you, Karen, on the FPS piece. I've seen a lot of chat about this in social media. Um, there was talk in the autumn statement about more information potentially being required in an FPS statement. Are you, are you familiar with what that might be or how that might look? Yeah, there was a consultation oh, not that long ago. Was it September time? I think we got the response. So we knew that this was coming. There was a number of measures, um, sectorial, which was out, location, which is in but out at the moment until HMRC can figure out the best way in which they can obtain that data. Um, but the hours, so the, for those who are variable hours, you're already or you should already be reporting hours paid. So the hours and the rate of pay. What still puzzles me, and Simon might have had a chance to have had to look if the at draft regs um, is the fact that it, because you're having to do this for salaried people. So we knew it was coming. But it was a case of they keep using the phrase hours worked. Well, for salaried, it'll be for us, it'll be contractual hours um, because we don't necessarily know hours worked. And if there are worked, overtime is usually paid in arrears. So I'm not quite sure how that can be up to date. So but reporting on the FPS where at the moment you have bans of, for hours mainly used for universal credits or other benefits, it will actually be hours um, so, but Simon, you might have seen more from the software developer side of things, um, but it, it wasn't unexpected. Um, it's just the way in which it sort of come out in those papers. Anything to add there, Simon? Yeah, so it's sort of uh, not expected, but slightly ridiculous is uh, probably the initial okay. response. And uh, I, I'm sure it's achievable that everyone can report the hours that people are being paid for, because that's the requirement, um, which is strange, isn't it? Because we've just had the uh, repeal of European law, working time directive, saying that we don't actually have to record hours in quite the way we did. And then we've got HMRC legislation coming out in relation to FPS reporting. And of course, there's the national minimum wage requirements, which require exactly the opposite. So we don't have to do it because the working time directive need it. We have to do it because HMRC and NMW need it. Uh, so it seems a bit um, 
uh, contradictory a little bit. That, that's sort of my flippant nature coming out today, especially as it's been a busy two days, um, I'd say. But, but I think the reality is, do employers know the hours worked? And I'm not sure that many do. Some do. And then there's an element of, does payroll know what hours have been worked and paid? And I actually don't think payroll in many cases will. I'd probably say there's a third where it might, a third where it absolutely doesn't, and a third where there's hours bouncing all over the place for various reasons. And actually someone might be working, I don't know, 900 hours a week because they've got hours going through for sections of first aid allowance or this allowance or that allowance because the hours are triggering so many other activities. If you add them all up together, it's much more than the standard hours. So I think uh, employers have got something to face uh, coming up, but the consultation, because I think the proposal uh, uh, is potentially that this will come in in April 2025. So there may be an element of get ready. But as Karen said at the beginning, uh, you're required to have these hours, for certainly for variable, on the pay slip already. Those don't translate into the FPS yet, but uh, that's what they're proposing. And can I just add, for Bureau, it's even worse because we're going to rely on clients telling us this. Well, you know, clients sometimes don't tell us what they want us to actually pay down, never mind actually tell us if somebody's, somebody's contractual hours or others. So it's going to be a challenge, especially if it's April 2025, which any government seems to think is very far away, and it just really isn't, unfortunately. Yes. That's the one pay, of, uh, Yeah, I was going to say, it reminds me of an LP cover of uh, Pink Floyd's. Yeah, be ready for change in time if you work in I've got a, a, one more question on the director's piece before we move on to tax cuts. I mm-hmm. want to run through the other, other statement changes. It comes in from Kim. It says, what happens for directors who have annual payroll and have already had their salary processed in month one? Do we need to process payroll in month 12 in order for them to get any refund due? Well, you, there is a refund due. You could just adjust the FPS if you can do that manually, but potentially, yes, you need to recalculate. Uh, and give them back their extra half percent. Super. Okay, so Sam, well, I've got you then uh, for the moment. Would you like us just to navigate us through the tax cuts? Well, there's probably an element of the much. The big tax cut was actually in the national insurance um, view. And actually, you may say, which is the counter argument here, there haven't really <laughs> been that many tax cuts because uh, all the thresholds, rates, bandings, etc are all frozen and they are confirmed by the Annex A that was issued yesterday because there's an element of what would happen, will something happen next, budget, etc. But they're in effect uh, frozen. Those, that's the initial thing that comes to mind. Now, there might be other areas where we think there are concessions. You've got things that are changed with ISAs that are coming into play next year that you can have more than one, uh, etc. But, uh, yeah, um, uh, now, it might trigger in my head some other tax codes, but I wasn't particularly aware of any. Okay. And uh, I've got the next bullet point here is full expensing permanent. Although I, this is probably a separate point, and I'll let Simon uh, sort of come into what this re- relates to in a moment. But I also, uh, as an EV user, uh, read that some changes probably doesn't really impact payroll quite so much, but you can change the way you expense that as well for charging at home. But maybe that's for a, a later episode. But uh, full expensing permanent, Simon, fill us in. Yeah, I'm not sure if I can, Nick. I might need some others to help. And it depends what this was meaning about. But I think you've mentioned about EV vehicles and charging at home. Yes, there's certainly a change there. 
because originally they were kind of saying, well, if you reimburse the fuel, it, well, the electricity charge, uh, that's taxable, isn't it? But now they're allowing you to offset it and they've changed yeah. their mind. I think forced hand, probably. I think people were, were probably made enough noise until they said, oh, all right, we're being stupid here. So we'll change our view. I feel like it makes sense, though, right, with, with rising energy costs and people charging at home for work-based use. I, I, I think, it, for me, it makes sense. I knew you'd know the answer to that, Simon, yes. because you're an EV user yourself, right? So hopefully that's a well, bit of a common yeah, sense. I've had a, yeah, I've had a charger on the side of my house since 2014. Uh, saying that, I didn't get an electric vehicle until two years ago. <laughs> okay, fantastic well there was a big shift which is in their benefits update uh benefits going to be uprated by i got 6.7 percent uh karen perhaps you can uh, guide us through the uh, the benefits updates yeah, thanks for that, Nick. Andy managed to jump in here because uh, no. obviously it's not so much payroll. Um, so yeah. forgive me, guys. This is a view. Um, so the state pension is in the triple lock. So it was higher, um, eight point something percent, if I recall. Right. Again, I have a very disappointed uh, husband uh, who is a retired police officer. So he's not going to get that higher. Uh, there, but he is still going to get that six odd percent, uh, which is applied to um, all you know, sort of occupational public sector pensions, because that's what they base it on the CPI, um, and obviously any benefits. Um, however, of course, there were also a number of packages that were about getting people back into work. So I think there's a, a bit of the seesaw going on there as well in that, yes, that they are bound by the CPI because that's what it's based on. Um, but then on the other side, there'll be a number of packages that will, you know, encourage people back to work and off benefits. Um, because I was also going to say there was also an extension to the veterans relief. Mm-hmm. Now, for how long? I haven't found yet. But I did see that because obviously that was in the, was it the 22 to 24 veteran package? Um, so it looks though they're looking to extend that. So whilst it's not benefits, it's obviously for those who are veterans and go into their first employment after the services. So I think that's something that we'll, we'll need to have a look at and maybe we can confirm next time once we, as all the papers start to come out and we all start to get a chance to digest them, then obviously we can, we can share more. But that's my understanding. I, Dandy, I don't know if you have any anything to add to that no not really no i don't know whether the smp rates nor ssp the statutory payment side of things have come out but um obviously that's not a pension thing that's uh no and um, more there's benefits yeah yeah anything for you yeah just the the nic extension on veterans is for an added one year uh and they've also announced the added uh extension for free ports and um, uh, investment zone being expanded from five to 10 years. So we may find that the veterans keeps on trickling ahead a year ago each time, if you know what I mean. Even if they've uh, announced it will be plus one year on the veterans NIC. So just jumping back into that might also help with the tax cuts. Sorry, Nick, because so when we're looking at tax cuts, by having the investment zones extended, the free ports, there's obviously tax incentives there for businesses as well that don't impact payroll, but will impact, you know, will offer more for businesses. So I think that's going from five years to 10 years. Super. Well, I'll stay with you then for a moment, Karen. I've had another question around this FPS piece we just discussed. Uh, it comes in from Suzanne, who says, the working hours recording is a hot topic for us. 
We have many employees who are way above minimum wage and work regular hours. Would we still need to record actual working hours for this population for HMRC or, or proof of national minimum wage compliance is needed? So I'm assuming that they're salaried rather than variable here. So on that assumption, this is the bit we're still waiting to clarify because the language being used is worked. Now, for national minimum wage, as Simon said earlier, when you look at national minimum wage compliance, they will expect the employer to have a record of hours worked so that they can ensure people are paid for those hours worked. From a payroll perspective, we effectively, unless they're variable, they will have a contractual hours of, let's say, 40 hours a week, and it's a salary. So it's a divisible amount by 12, let's say. And then if they work overtime, and what, what we look at is, because there is an annual check for national minimum wage rates on, on salaried employees, which software rarely does. So that's the difference is national wages hours worked absolutely and they're saying that's not changed. That's the bit in the consultation document I think that infuriated many of us is it says well employers already record that now. Employers might have a record of their time and attendance or agile flexible working whatever that might be you know flexi time and things but in the payroll it isn't. If, if somebody's full-time you don't even need what their full-time hours are. It's only if they're going to pro-rata it, you need to know the difference between full and part. So yeah. there will also be employers who don't currently record it where somebody's full-time because everybody yeah. in the business is 37 hours a week. So there is going to be a lot of work for payroll, which was, and I think mm -hmm. Simon will, will agree, these messages were given to HMRC. Um, but clearly there is a, a higher ulterior motive because if you actually look at the tin, which is where they measure the impact on the treasury and the impact on business, I think it's about 63 million on employers as a burden. So, wow. you know, it, it's, it's not something that we're just going to be able to just do. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. so I don't know if that answers your question because at the moment we need it to be hours, contractual hours for salary and then obviously any overtime you would usually show separately anyway hmm. okay so it's quite quite difficult nick here and i, I think if we asked e even if we asked our audience we probably haven't got that question but um you know I'm, I'm contracted to 35 hours a week um i i'm just giggling on the floor when you say that because i haven't <laughs> worked less than you know 35 hours a week i wish is um, sort of the thing. And I'd imagine there's lots of payroll professionals in that same position. You paid a salary, all right, it might be a decent salary, but you don't work those hours. That's, but does my employer know what I do? And at the moment, I'd say the reality is quite often for many of us, they don't. And that's the mm. challenge with national minimum wage because they then badge you as something they call unmeasured. So you don't fall under the annualized hours configuration so that then look at it. I mean, I tend to say for many of us, we'll still be above national minimum wage. So there isn't a problem, but that doesn't apply to everyone. And and here we've got a position of we, we may think we know worked hours, but lots of employers are getting caught because they don't pay things that they don't think are worked. But national minimum wage law says is work. So training at home, travel, uh, and other types of things where we'd say, well, you wouldn't pay for that. They're not working. And, but the law says they are. 
Fantastic. And also just to add to that, then, um, uh, Suzanne, who put the question in and said, thank you ever so much. This has been really helpful. We've been working through the different guidance. So that's what our panel is here for. So fantastic. Well, there's a few other changes as well, um, which we absolutely should mention while we're here. Like the autumn statement, well, of course, links to minimum wage rises. Uh, so, Simon, I wonder if you could uh, just walk us through. Yeah, sure. So significant rises and we do have confirmation of the drop in age if you didn't see it. So the national living wage is rising to 11.44 from age 21. So that's a significant rise next year. I could probably even tell you the percentage if I had my document in front of me, but I don't. But I can probably soon find it. Uh, and the, uh, the lowest rise is probably to the offset uh, amount. But uh, for the youngsters, they're getting a 22% rise in apprentices. So just be wary of that. They are significant. Now, that has implications elsewhere. So you're offering a load of benefits through salary sacrifice. Uh, do you have a 9.7% gap that, uh, that will cover the rise? Because you may find you're heading for breach area of national minimum wage. So it's an element of just watching out. But uh, I've managed to find it. Nick, I can tell you exactly what they are. So Fantastic. the um, national living wage from age 21 is £11.44. For those 18 to 20, it's £8.60. That's a rise of 14.8%. For 16 to 7-year-olds, it's going up to £6.40. That's a rise of 21.2. And apprentices are aligned with them. The rise in accommodation offset is 9.8%. But the 21, 22-year-olds are getting a 12.4% rise as a result of that now being aligned with the national living wage. So they're not small sums. They are quite significant. But again, that probably reflects the political timetable that we're on. Yes, absolutely right. Yes. Now, a couple of things I saw on, uh, on the social chats before we move on to the next. Well, actually, I'm move on to Paul in just a moment. So do get ready to uh, vote uh, in just a moment. Uh, but a couple of things I saw on social media um, regarding the autumn statement. One was related to the extension of certain employer NICs reliefs. And the other was related to, which will impact many of the people that I'm sure watch this webinar, uh, the CIS reform. So the construction industry scheme, which does impact uh, many people that are involved in those payments. I think uh, the government, as I understand it, announced it's going to introduce reforms to CIS. I don't think any specific pay, uh, changes are taking place yet. Uh, but I don't know, Karen, if you've if you've familiar or up to date with the CIS reforms. If not, I can read a report here. Um, I'll come to you first. No, it's on my to-do. <laughs> yeah, I want to see no, how it impacts our payroll working. So that's where I'm yeah. sort of coming at it. I want to see if there's an impact and what it will do there. Well, for those that are involved in CIS payments, as I say, it's just uh, the announcement they'll introduce reforms to the CIS scheme. Uh, it means that value-added tax VAT is added as part of the gross payment status compliance test. HMRC will then have enhanced powers to remove gross payment status where fraud has been detected. Uh, a technical consultation is expected, which will explore simplifying other elements of the scheme. Uh, and regarding the extension of certain employer NIC reliefs, um, Karen, are you familiar with those or Simon? Possibly, yeah. I think that's what we're um, saying about the veterans. Ah, okay. Yes. Well, it's the veterans. Yes. So veterans, uh, free ports, investment zones. So one year added to the current timeline for veterans, five years added to the current timeline for free ports and investment zones. Fabulous. Right, well, let's go to our next poll. So there's. 
Sorry, Simon, I think you're cutting out and we'll jumped over each other. My apologies. Um, I'm going to go to the poll, though, uh, while I've got the audio for the moment. There's two questions I'm going to ask our panel while we run this poll. So if I haven't asked your question yet, don't worry. I'll try and get to it in just a moment. Uh, the poll is this. What are your thoughts on the revelations from the government's autumn statement? Uh, four options for you. Looks good so far. It's a mixed bag. Things are getting worse or I need more time to review. Uh, we've got up well over 100 of you uh, watching today. So if you can answer that question so we can get a really good view on what the, uh, the well, temperature check really, what the pearl industry are feeling, that'd be wonderful. And we will comment on those results. While we're waiting for everyone to do that, I'm going to ask two questions, if I may, to our panel. The first comes in from Charlotte, which says this, uh, the Christmas £50 thank you voucher. This is being provided to directly employed colleagues. And there's also a request to give the voucher to agency workers working in the same business area. We think that exemption under trivial benefits would apply for our employees, but that this wouldn't be the case for the agency workers if we provided the voucher, as they aren't our employees. Would this fall under third-party awards incentives and therefore tax class 1A and IC would need to be considered? Or could it be exempt under third-party gifts to employees? Or would it be considered as being connected to the employer? Is it best for the agency to provide their employees with this voucher and to recharge the cost to us? We're unsure of the best way to provide and the associated implications. Any advice would be gratefully received. Simon or Karen, who would like to tackle that? I'm happy to come in, but I'm afraid I'll need to do the caveat. This is very much tax advice. So when we had a debate, if you remember last time of do we or don't we give tax advice, I'm afraid because you've got different circumstances, we don't know what that agency relationship is with, with you, etc. that whilst there may well be a way in which you can give those agency workers that voucher, you will need to seek tax advice to understand the most appropriate way in which to deliver that Christmas voucher. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, uh, Karen's response is fairly accurate, to be honest. It is, uh, you're getting into a real kind of uh, t tax advice and to that extent is regulated activity. So we have to be careful, but we've read out, read out our disclaimer at the beginning, Nick. Um, yeah. Karen and I probably can give tax advice, but to do that, we have to do due diligence uh, on who we're giving it to, uh, uh, which, uh, because it's a requirement of anti-money laundering regulations. But there's an element of thinking, yeah, you're right, the £50 may be considered trivial benefit, but even there I'm thinking, it depends what this voucher is and the nature of it, uh, could it be treated as cash? Uh, because not, not all vouchers are non-cash, and it depends how transferable it is, so there are other caveats within the materials, but potentially could that be tax-free? If it meets certain conditions, yes, but in other conditions, if it fails them, none of it could be tax-free. It's an initial thought. I don't know what your thoughts are there, Karen, as well. Plus, it's I, I would agree. subject it's to like, class one. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. like you, I can, I can do the tax advice, but again, there, 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 it would have to be a, a conversation where we sort of say at the beginning on individual scenarios, this would be one of those uh, to understand and that due diligence of what's the voucher and everything and the relationships that go with it because as Simon says you can have non-cash but you are right in the fact trivial benefit is 50 pounds or below not a penny above yes yeah okay that's good so uh, what well, I'll, I'll add my little two two pennies worth because it might may or may not circumnavigate the issue altogether um but if they are agency workers obviously as someone who runs an agency um just because you give it to your employees unless the agency workers under AWR 
have been with you for over 12 weeks anyway. Um, they're not entitled to equal treatment. So um, I don't know how long these temps have been working for you, but for those that are at least under the 12-week period, um, maybe that makes some of that problem a little bit easier. They've only just started in the last month or so. Um, obviously, you may want to do it as just being a good employer, and that's something separate. But um, you're not don't, you know, under the treating everyone fairly and equally. Uh, that doesn't apply unless they've been with you for 12 weeks, is my understanding. So that may or may not be helpful as well, Charlotte. And um, another question here that's come in, uh, groceries salary sacrifice schemes. How real are these? They sound too good to be true. Uh, if, I was thinking if they sound too good to be true, then it probably is too good <laughs> to be true. Yeah, um, that's not something I've heard about, actually. So um, I don't know, Simon, if you've got any advice on this or not. Well, it depends. On a general principle, there's an element of groceries do not appear on the list of items that are exempt from the opera rules. So there would be a tax liability. That's that's the initial thing. Now, if you're saying it's something different because you're actually the retailer and you're allowing them to get it in some sort of discounted way, then there's an element of, oh, we're now into the tax advice market area as well. I can think, Karen, of thinking. But uh, as a general principle, uh, can you salary sacrifice for anything other than bikes, uh, um, childcare vouchers, pensions, vehicles under 75 grams per kilometre, etc., without a tax charge, uh, and, and holidays because it's not cash, um, uh, and pen- you're running into a difficult area because anything else, even if there wouldn't be a back, uh, benefit charge on the item, um, the salary sacrifice itself becomes taxable under the opera rules. And I've just done a quick look up <laughs> while you were very eloquently answering that question. Um, there is such thing on gov.uk, would you believe, expenses and benefits, food and groceries. Um, and it does say salary sacrifice. If the cost of the food or groceries is less than the amount of salary given up, report the salary amount instead. These rules do not apply for any arrangements before 2017. So it opera does indeed apply. Okay, super. Well, let's have a look then. That's helped with those two questions. Keep them coming in. We'll get to as many as we can. But for the moment, let's have a look at these poll results. Remind everyone here, what are your thoughts on the revelation of the government's autumn statement? For those in audio only, we have looks good so far at 7%. It's a mixed bag, overwhelmingly most popular at 69%. Things are getting worse, 5%. And 19% say I need more time to review. Interesting that uh, pretty much an equal split thinks it looks good and equal split thinks it's getting worse. Um, Karen, what are your thoughts on that, on those results? I think, to be fair, I probably agree with the majority that it was a mixed bag. There was, you know, some good things for individuals, um, some good things for business. Um, and I think, you know, I say whilst we're not here to give any views around policy, which I don't intend to, to do, it's just... You know, you have to wonder how long these things will last. Um, but at the moment, here for us, I just wish the timing um, had been a little different. Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. But let's jump in. We've got lots to get through today. So we can jump into our next area, something that uh, I'm personally quite passionate about, but for probably different reasons to everybody else, which is uh, the festive season uh, prep and making sure you've got cover for that difficult time. I think that actually peril people deserve a break more than anyone at the moment. You're working tirelessly. It's really hard to take a holiday or who else is going to cover you. Uh, you've worked really, really hard for a number of years since the pan- that dreaded word, the pandemic. 
Uh, but it doesn't mean you don't need a bit of rest and recuperation. Now, I would argue that that could easily be covered if you work with a payroll specialist agency like JJ Recruitment, right? That's what we're here for. We do contracts, we do temps, and we can help you out. But I know that's not possible for everyone. So for those that can't afford the temporary cover or don't know how to find it, uh, how do we prepare for this, Karen? Because by your own admission, off air when we started this call, you were saying, Nick, with all these changes to national insurance and everything else, what's going to happen to my holiday? What do we do? Well, effectively, I would I would hope most employers and certainly bureaus, we have no choice but to plan. You know, we start around the end of September checking with clients what they're going to do for their Christmas paydays. Most clients will pay early. Um, how significant that is, because obviously you have to watch with the impact of universal credit. So people need to understand the rules around what date they make sure it goes on the FPS, just as a wee reminder there. Um, but at the end of the day, we've been doing that planning, uh, which is where we do make sure we've got a cover. So we know when clients are going to be paying their employees. Um, we do, unfortunately, have maybe just five or six that pay in between Christmas, New Year and do not pay their employees early. They uh, want to do that and they are variable, which means somebody within our team does have to actually work between Christmas and New Year. But there are some people, of course, who don't enjoy Christmas and you know we have to we accept that and you know they want to work so usually if you have people within your team that that are like that then you've usually got a nice balance but I think the key is knowing your clients or knowing what your employees when you're going to pay them making sure you've got your deadlines have been communicated because I mean they should have been communicated I would hope by now Uh, but if they haven't I would be on that as soon as you finish watching uh, this webinar um, to make sure employees know when to get their overtime in and everything else if you're going to be paying early and you want that Christmas break so it's all about the planning now when it comes to these changes that announced for that then the earlier you start talking to your software developers because that's that's the key Um, because nobody really wants to delay putting this change in because then you're looking at retrospective calculations and we don't want that either. So it will be a case of, I think, if somebody, and if it's likes of me, then it will be me that I wouldn't ask my team to work. I will will nip in and and do whatever needs to be done um, so that the national insurance change is in ready for the the start of January. Uh, But I think given those, it's, it's just about the planning. But that bit, I think the crucial bit will be chatting is talking to your software developer and as Simon said for those organizations that that block out including ourselves because you are you've moved all your dates forward so you are hammering your infrastructure um you know over a shorter period of time instead of it being over a total month so it will be important obviously to talk to your tech your IT teams if that if you are in that situation as well. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Fantastic. And it does, um, does raise us a, a genuine question. I've got a statement here from Ashley Dorman that says, unashamed plug, Nick. And that's uh, absolutely right. But there's, there's a genuine question there. So what is, 
<laughs> when it comes to temporary recruitment and bringing people in, Karen, for yourself, we know it's it's complex. We know it's busy. We also know pale people do need that rest. We also know there are a lot of people that would be desperately love to work over the festive period because it's difficult financially for many people. What are some of the things people need to consider if they're considering taking on you know, temporary support over the payroll months to help them on board in what's probably a relatively short-term assignment, but allows you to get the rest that you need. What are the things that people watching this may want to consider or, you know, what are the things that perhaps might help them through that period from a, from a temporary resource perspective? Well, again, first of all, Planet, so you, start, you need to talk to the recruitment agency and or secure a recruitment agency that's going to provide you with the, the expertise you need. If you are an employee, you know your payroll and therefore you'd be looking for the right skill set. If you're a bureau, ideally, you'd be looking for somebody who knows how to operate in a bureau uh, because this is short term. Um, you will have to have payroll procedures in place you are if you are a bureau you will need to have payroll client manuals in place you may need to consider handover so you may need to bring that person in a couple of weeks prior to you closing down and going off and enjoying your break uh, to make sure that, that they've got that particularly like weekly payrolls and things like that that maybe you'll use that person for more than anything else um, and of course you know having somebody on call because as we all know in payroll, anything can go wrong. So that will be making sure your IT departments have an emergency call because where they might be used to not being contacted because nobody's working, if you are going to stay open and you're going to recruit an individual, they may not have all the same knowledge that you might have done to do a fix or a what have you. So you're going to have to have your IT support and make sure they're available should that individual, you know, what equipment are they going to use? Are they going to work from home? Are they connected to your VPN already? What data security things are you going to have to put in place are they going to have to undertake some form of confidentiality uh, agreements and the list could go on but I think it's due diligence preparation and making sure that that person has got all the tools that they're going to need to deliver the service that you want them to deliver so you can enjoy your break Sounds like I need to hire into my team, uh, Karen, but you're right. You know, preparation prevents poor performance later. And I think the earlier you start, both for demand and also to make sure you've got that, all the controls in place, it probably makes sense to me. Uh, from yourself, Simon, any other things that we need to consider in relation to this festive period cover to make sure that the payroll professionals watching this are fully prepared? Well, I'll take a slightly different angle, if I may, Nick. I won't look at the payroll right. professionals, but look at the employee base, maybe, and holiday cover and are you prepared, et cetera. Um, but some of the social media discussions I've seen over the past few days, are lots of employees complaining by the fact that they're being uh, given notice that they're taking annual leave, which they thought they had more control of. So there is an element of um, sort of moving from the business holiday cover angle to the closure period of how people react especially when some of them are probably uh, more irregular workers, think they had rights to take leave here, there and everywhere. And their shift would be, for example, between Christmas and New Year, not bank holidays, but the place is shut down and they're being told that those are three days holiday they've got to take, yet they haven't got three days left. So there's an element of just thinking of the whole thing for the business and how that impacts payroll potentially etc the other thing I'm probably saying, that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. just hold you there for a moment and before we get to the other things I think we can reverse engineer this slightly as well there'll be a lot of companies where employees haven't if they're working an annual cycle on holiday allowance haven't used all their allowance yet and may want Correct. to ask their employees they can carry it over what are the potential implications of that 
Well, yeah, well, potentially at the moment, uh, EU law prevents that for the first 20 days of uh, entitlement. But UK law allows it, but only if the employer agrees. So that's only the eight days. So there is some element, uh, excepting sickness and statutory leave, uh, entitlements, paternity, paternity, etc. But for the ordinary OIC uh, that hasn't been sick and isn't on statutory pay, uh, your legal entitlement to carry over those 20 days doesn't exist, except for the COVID exemption, which ends on the 31st of March 2024. So that's part of the rolling forward days is that uh, for COVID, it allowed you to carry forward elements of all the allowance for two years, again, by only agreement. But that expires, that rule or that law allowing that stops March 24. Um, so, But yes, Nick, uh, you will. Uh, so how do you manage holiday? How do you make sure it's taken? Plus, there is a lot in social media of people saying, well, I've still got these number of days. I've tried to book it for the past three months. They keep on denying to nine to nine. It's now coming to the end of December and they say you can't take December off at all. What do you do? Mm. So there's amount of employers do need to act equitably because they do have to allow holiday to be taken at some point, although they do have the ability to prevent December leave. Yeah, well, well, equally, for those rolling it over, for the employers that allow them to take it into the following year, the employers don't necessarily yes. want their entire workforce off for the first two weeks in January. Uh, so it, it's uh, there's some consideration there as well about when it needs to be used if we are allowing it to, to hold over. Lots of things to think about here. I think it's important, as Karen said, that we, as employers or people working in these departments or on payroll, that we consider these things as early as possible to make sure we're fully prepared for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was another thing you wanted to mention, Simon. I did cut you well, off. Uh, you know, yeah, I was at an event and Karen gave a, gave, gave, uh, a great talk the other week, Karen. And I was kind of saying, uh, Karen, you're saying you're going to be there in the throw of making sure it's all done and not place the burden on your staff. The other aspect I'm going to say to you is, uh, and, and to us all, is we have to make sure that we don't have our own self burnout. Hope you don't mind me saying that, Karen. Do you? Not at all. Not at all. Having had one, as you know, if you were in that audience, which I didn't know you were there actually at the time, um, but now I do, then you will know that, no, I never wish to go there again. Yeah, and it's, and it's a real thing. You know, we, we obviously see have a bird's eye view of this as recruiters here. Burnout is an absolute real thing. If you don't take it seriously, it can creep up on you and hit you unexpectedly. Um, and I'll go back to the, uh, for those that listen to the high performance podcast or something similar, uh, if you think of an F1 race, a Formula One race um, is won and lost in the pits. And if you don't, if you don't change your tyres, no matter how performance vehicle you may be driving, it doesn't finish. It breaks down. Um, and if you don't have those pit stops as people, and Christmas is a great time to do that because it's not just about taking your break; it's having time with social community and and all the good things that come with it. If if you're that way inclined, um, the rest stops are really, really important to make sure we don't break down. So do take that seriously. That's not an unashamed plug towards recruitment or attempts. There's other solutions, of course, that might better help you, but that is one of the solutions that might support you to be able to do that and, and don't neglect it. It's really important for mental health. Um, coming then down to the bullet point here, we've got holiday pay. What changed new rules from April 24 in relation to that wonderful question we've tackled many times on this show, rolled up pay. Simon, I'll come to you on this one because you and I have discussed this a few times before. Yeah, sure. And it's very interesting, isn't it? So we had the Brazil uh, case last year where uh, the Supreme Court confirmed that 1207% wasn't covered by any uh, holiday pay law and was unlawful. So although it may have been practiced some years ago, there was no basis in law for it. So the government have reviewed, they've had a consultation, they've come out with a new 
um, holiday pay rule for what they call irregular and part-year workers, allowing a 12.07% accrual basis. Now, um, or a 12.07% rolled-up holiday top-up basis. And everybody would say, yay, we're back to how it used to be. I don't think it is, so you need to look at the rules because it's not how it used to be. The problem with the former is it denied people rights during other times when you'd normally have included the 5.6 weeks entitlement, such as sickness and statutory payment. And actually, with the new rule, the 1207 accrual, it accrues through sickness and uh, periods of statutory leave based on the average hours worked over the past 52 weeks. All right, so there's even a continuance. So you could have someone where you come into a period, it's just thought, where, um, okay, the work's running out, so now we've dropped them down. Uh, they turn up with a doctor's note, they'll actually carry on accruing holiday entitlement on the same basis as if they, the hours hadn't dropped. And the same with rolled-up holiday. The rolled-up holiday is bringing in something that European courts outlawed in 2006. So some time ago, uh, some employers have still carried on with it, mind you, that you can actually, for irregular and part-year workers only, uh, pay rolled-up holiday 12.07% has to be separate on top. Is that NMW pay? I doubt it because it's, yeah, so be careful there. Don't think you can include it in the test, but you've got to pay that 1207 on top. And you have to pay an average of the 1207s that you've already paid if they go sick or take statutory leave for things like maternity, paternity, shared adoption. Oh. Anything to add to that, uh, Karen, or would you like us to negotiate us through the sick pay element? <laughs> I don't have anything to add because the Simon says when you when you sort of when you see it and you think oh great twelve point oh seven and then you start to look at the the different bits so you know full time or a full year worker regular hours or a part year worker or irregular hours and full year, you know when you start to look at the different things and you think. So I was initially thinking, oh, great news, 12.07, as Simon described. And then bit by bit, my sort of lovely, you know, when I, my little rose-tinted glasses started to fade. Um, I do think it is an improvement. I think that there are some improvements there. But as Simon says, it is going to be important to know your workforce, or more importantly, you know, what your workforce looks like and then what holiday entitlement. The other thing to just bear in mind is that, where you have, uh, I say manual calculators, probably Excel spreadsheets that you are using with average pay and everything else is obviously they may need to be revisited depending upon which category your workers fall into. Um, I think more will come out on this. I think there'll be more guidance available um, as people, certainly like ourselves, uh, digest this even further and start to come up with the different scenarios to support people through it. Yeah. And if I can make a little bit more comment, uh, the other Please. aspects is it's uh, a crawl of all hours worked, not contract. And uh, and equally on the rolled up holiday, it's all pay, not basic. And there is no difference between Euro pay and UK pay. It's all the same. So the former regulation 1313A, there is no distinction in this new holiday pay cover. 
Now, there was review in the consultation to actually review the 5.6 and make it a single entitlement within the United Kingdom. Now we've left Europe. Um, that hasn't been changed. So the rules for people that aren't irregular and aren't part years are exactly the complex ones we have now. They haven't changed at all. Yeah, yeah. And Karen's um, very kindly um, given us a link, which I put in the uh, in the chat notes. For those of you following the chat, there's a link there to a really good table from the CIPP site that uh, that breaks this down for the different uh, pay and entitlements that, that people can get depending on different situations. Uh, one really interesting questions come into the uh, chat box. And I, I say it's interesting, Simon, because we tackled this uh, not about Christmas uh, payments, but due, when uh, some of the changes were announced during the pandemic. But the question comes in from Emmy Rodens and says, uh, Christmas bonuses. Is there any issue with paying them in January 24 rather than December 23 to take advantage of the NIC uh, reductions? What a great idea. Uh, I, think, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't use the word, those words, but uh, um, if it's uh, discretionary and you pay it, you choose when you want to pay it. Uh, point of payment is the taxation and national insurance point. Yeah. Fab. Well, listen, let's um, let's jump into our next section because I'm aware that time is escaping us. We've still got lots to get through. So let's talk about car allowances and mileage payments. I know we touched upon a little bit uh, of the autumn uh, summary uh, changes in relation to EV uh, mileage and things. But um, if it's not done properly, it's unlawful. Uh, is this an unlawful deduction of wages? And I do believe Simon's talked a little bit about this on his own site, which I recommend everyone follows. It's fantastic. Uh, Payadvice uh, UK, I think, or org. I'll let Simon yes, plug it. But um, yeah. Tell us more about the uh, UK. We'll get you there. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. And, and Karen, I think this is an area you were uh, facing some challenge from a little bit as well, wasn't it? So yeah. Um, yeah. And we've we've had a number of clients come to us because um, I guess there's not. Yeah, the question whether it's an unlawful deduction of wages um, is an interesting one. But this relates yeah. to a case uh, where. Uh, the upper tribunal, I think, of HMRC um, found against uh, HMRC and decided that the share of uh, car allowance payments that's paid to an individual, which currently will be taxable and deniable, but you can declare your business mileage, therefore offset your tax liability, also should have allowance for uh, employee and employer national insurance. Um, and that's kind of a, oh, right, on the basis of the uh, 45p and 25p rates based on business miles. Okay, so there's significant amounts of money. And I know I've certainly discussed with a couple of organizations that um, this could account for hundreds of thousands of pounds of overpayment of NI. I don't know what your thoughts are uh, from a different angle there, uh, Karen. Uh, well, the, the, one of the reasons we're putting this on is because obviously the case is there, and for those who you know, it's got to be uh, relatable uh, motoring expenses. So I, I was just going to throw in: if you are unsure if what you are paying your employees is that, I'm afraid whilst it's national insurance relief, it is still comes under tax advice. So just be careful of that because HMRC did lose this case, um, probably unhappily. Um, but they don't intend to appeal. There is some questions around how we could do this retrospectively, because this goes back to everyone a day for at least six years, uh, because it's these cases, because it's not just what, you know, there, there's been a number of cases. So 
with that I've not seen yet how we're going to do retrospective. Um, I'm hoping it's not through RTI because obviously that will impact uh-huh. FPSs and prior to the EYUs. But Simon, you might have heard something different. Well, yeah, last was it last week or the week before there was the agents update and it does outline how the reclaim should take place, which is by corrective FPS year-to-date adjustments for the relevant years, or you have to have a good excuse. Why not? Why not? So that, of course, then is going to be potentially EYUs as well. So where it was where it was relevant there, of course, what you'll have to be careful as well is that in order to do that, those employees affected would obviously have to be on that payroll. So if you've used um, a different agent uh, with different software, just bear that in mind. Um, from an unlawful deduction, this was a, a, a just a debate that was raised with some tax advisors which was because it is now law effectively because the case has been won by not looking at the relevant motoring expenses now so let's use car allowance would be a typical one that is most likely to be to fall into that category by not separating out car allowance that's subject to tax and NICS and then a car allowance subject to tax only by not giving the NICS relief could that be challenged as unlawful deduction of wages? And it is a question. Now, obviously, it's because where we thought, okay, we'll look at the retrospective. Yes, we'll look at, okay, we're going to get these components in and we'll look at our employees. I would suggest that perhaps we need to look at our, our, you know, your situations with employers sooner, perhaps rather than later, because this is a question mark. Um, but could it be viewed as that because you're not giving the relief, even though effectively the law says they are entitled to it? So that's where it goes. So, and obviously, if you're a bureau, um, you know, obviously making the clients aware, then I would suggest you you also make aware that you cannot decide for them whether or not this is relevant because it is forming in tax advice. Um, and as the, you would then need to determine what will you ask of your clients? Will you be looking for just two amounts, one that's subject to tax and NICS and one amount that's subject to tax? So you're going to need to think about that as well. Yeah. Anything to add to that, uh, Simon? Or was that a no, I think that's. Yeah, I think that is. Yes. I did. Um, I did read between the lines though, and suggest that uh, it looks like, from what I heard from Norton's statement, um, I, you know, bear in mind, I've got this clearly. I may not have done. It, it suggests that their petrol prices are going to be going up uh, by about twenty-three pence per litre if everything is. Uh, uh, I don't know that's if I read into it, but I expect the, the price of fuel to go up anyway next year. Not really related to payroll necessarily, but it does link to our cost of living. Um, there are lots of uh, savings in one space, but uh, you might find increases uh, appearing in other places. Um, but uh, maybe for others to look at at a different time. But listen, let's go into a uh, poll number two, uh, which is going to be about uh, holiday pay. Who do you think should be responsible for it? So there are three options here. Uh, the first is payroll. The second is HR or employment. And the third is not sure. Uh, so an interesting poll to run here. Um, so while I'm doing that, I've had a question coming in from Cheryl saying, um, Karen or Simon, do you have any links to the car allowances, please? You could put in the chat. If you do, uh, put it through to me and I will share that. In fact, well, Karen's either reading I've my mind done here. <laughs> done it at the same time as seeing the question. There you go. They're on the ball. So I'll share that with everyone in just a moment. Um, after this, we're going to jump in quickly to the early wage access section of the show. Uh, so if everyone can just fill in that poll as best you can, see where we are in terms of uh, participation. 
Uh, still a few of you to vote. 60% of you have voted so far, so I'll let that run just for a few more seconds. Uh, so still to go in the show, we've got a bit of time. We're going to talk about the early wage access and the code of practice guidelines launched by the COPP. That's going to come up next uh, and whether or not we need um, more financial education processes in place. We're going to tell you about a fantastic free webinar, which I think will be plug number three for today. Very rare. But it is all for your benefit, which really talks about the payroll people revolution, uh, the transformation of payroll into a strategic business must have. Something I think that everyone will be interested in. I recommend you sign up. So we'll give you some information about that. We're going to talk briefly about the SD Works Academy. And there'll be that uh, pensions update from Andy uh, assuming he's able to join us for that as well. Right, let's have a look at these poll results. Then I think we've got 80% of you have now voted. So let's see those come through. And this time, Simon, I'd ask you for you to comment on the results. But for those listening in audio only, question was, who should be responsible for holiday pay? The answers are payroll, 50%. HR employment came in at 46%, so pretty close split, and not sure, 4%. So we've got a quite a, a binary response to this one, Simon. We either think it's HR, we think it's payroll. What are your thoughts on the, on the, on the results? Yes, they're both right. So it's payroll and HR's responsibility, um, but not individually. Uh, the reason being is that payroll doesn't control entitlement. It might control pay, and they're combined together. And that's the complexity about the law that's come out over this over the while. So actually, if you said, what's my opinion, uh, Nick, you know me, I'd actually go with the not sure crowd as being correct but those answers i can understand yes um uh, i think if you ask the layman or when i say the lay business owner on the street who's responsible is it as with national minimum wage they'd all point to payroll the reality is they're not about pay they're about employment law entitlements and the elements of that are not in payroll's control it's interesting because my response would have been on the HR side. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even though I do these things, for me, that's something that would sit with HR. But I can, I could probably be persuaded otherwise. It's interesting. I wasn't expecting this to be such an even split. So yeah. because it is so close, Karen, I, I, let me ask your view on it. Usually I'll just get from one person's commentary. But I think, do you sit on the same side of the fence as Simon? Are you with me on HR or do you think it should sit with payroll? So I am the same as Simon, but... I'll I'll just extend a little bit more. So payroll is responsible. As an agent, I know that clients and Simon will have the same issue, I am sure, is if somebody's not quite sure where it sits, then it must be with payroll, um, which is where that person on the street. However, Simon is right. When it comes to the biggest problem when looking at holiday pay, which might explain why there's this split, is that, yes, payroll will pay holiday pay. Absolutely. But when it comes to what should be included, so that entitlement, and that's where the difficulty lies, is that to determine, are you going to include bonus? Are you going to include regular overtime or just and ad hoc overtime and all of the the case laws put together? Those decisions cannot be payroll because it is employment law you are interpreting or the business must interpret from guidance alone um, and all the cases that have come out what they want to include and deem as holiday pay once that decision has been made then it's about paying it and this is why it's in both camps but the decision making i would say sits more with hr than it does with payroll yeah, I, I think that would be my view. some information. 
pay or deliver, obviously, what's been you know, strategically decided at that employment law level, for sure. But I think it's, as you say, it's uh, for me, it would sit then with the people that make those or interpret that law in the right way. But listen, that's the, it's interesting. It's split. Let's see how this changes. We're all here to try and improve the strategic uh, nature of payroll. So maybe that will change in the future. Maybe it will sit with payroll as it becomes more of a strategic entity. But that's what you can see. But for now, let's jump into the next part of our show, uh, which is going to link to early wage access. Uh, Code of Practice Guidelines have been launched by the CIPP. For those not familiar, that's the Chartered Institute of Payroll Professionals. Uh, Does that mean we need more financial education processes in place? Um, Who would like to, to, to kick us off with early wage access? Hot topic in the world of payroll. Karen. I just knew you were going to do that. You see, you're always in my eye line. It's like, well, Karen. Yeah. Um, oh, now some of these are going to be my personal views. So I'm just going to put that out there now. Um, the code of practice that's been launched by the CIPP. First of all, it's good that it is these kind of things are being looked at, first of all. However, looking at the code of practice, um, I am a little disappointed, and I'm trying to be as, as politically correct as I can here. I am a little disappointed because it does seem to lend itself more to those providing this service than it does to necessarily protecting employees. But that's my view. Um, I think we had once upon a time payday loans, which, you know, we all knew that that, that those weren't necessarily the, the best practice. So instead, now we have these early wage access now. And there may be certain sectors that this is really uh, beneficial to in the gig economy and what have you. You know, you go in to do your work, you maybe want paid at the end of that day. But when you're looking at salaried or regular earners I think we have to be very very careful which is where that second point comes in I think if you are going to be an employer who adopts these schemes and of course the RTI uh, legislation was changed to allow for advances to be made presumably because of the cost of living and everything else I'm sure there was certainly more to uh, that change in legislation because it was raised back in 2010 when RTI was first on the table um, but with that, I think you need to have financial education in place. And I say that from real, I say anecdotal evidence, but it's real. At an event where I overheard somebody, a young person saying, yeah, when I go out in the town and I go out for drinks, when I run out of money, I just draw down on my salary before I've got it. Now, I'm not saying everybody would do that. But I think if you that is the reality that people can do that. So it's maybe looking at what your scheme you put in place, how many times they can draw down, educating so that employees don't go into debt. Um, and I think I will leave it there. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to um, and I, all of these, I think, are personal views. Right. Because I think it's quite a hot topic, which does divide. Um, and I, I know for one case, as you gave there, absolutely relevant and right that we need we have those concerns why education is so important. But also there's there's the opposite side, of course, where people will want access to avoid them from taking out these loans and other things and get themselves in debt. So there's definitely both sides of the coin. Something I wanted to mention here, and I'll be interested to see if, if both yourself and Simon um, have the same understanding or, or interpretation as I do here. And I, I get this from shows I've done on the Payroll podcast. And I think there's been a lot of marketing confusion around the, the term EWA, because EWA in this case can either relate to early wage access, which for some suppliers means they'll give you access to your wages before you've earned them. 
And then there's earned wage access, which is access to pay in real time after you've earned it, if you like. So you do your shift, as you mentioned, you can immediately draw down the wages that you've effectively earned. But they are, in some instances, very different things. And I think there's some confusion around this because people roll it up into the acronym of or the initialism of EWA, but they can mean two very different things. And of course, there's other terms as well, like pay on demand, which further confuses things. But Simon, from, if I come to you then on this, um, are you would you have two different distinctions for the two different terms, or for you are they one and the same? And what are your overall thoughts on them? Um, on, on on I guess on both really. Um, I actually think they're the same, um, in honesty, when I look at it, because um, it isn't actually their earnings they're drawing down either. It's, it's, it is a bit like uh, uh, um, borrowing a tenner off a friend because you've got a tenner on the shelf or you will have by the end of the week sort of thing. So uh, it's a difficult one. I, and, and I guess there's an element of uh, do we offer early wage access services? Potentially we do. But I think there's an element of understanding. So if I go back to the code of practice, um, I, I have a lot of empathy with uh, Karen's view because I'm not sure it carries balance is the challenge at the moment and why. Uh, for example, it will state, make a statement that early wage access is not credit. Um, I understand what they're saying. It's not regulated credit, but that was the point of the review was they were looking at unregulated credit. But so there's an element of don't pretend what it is. You are getting a sort of a temporary loan, but it doesn't fall under credit as doesn't other things like, I don't know, Klarna, um, uh, pay now, buy now, pay later. Some of these don't for, don't formal under formal credit agreements because of the nature of what they are. But the principle is this, I will get the money because I've already done the work. Therefore, it doesn't have to fall under regulated credit. Now, Martin Lewis makes a comment. I think it's worth looking up what he says about these. I think he'll say it's unregulated credit and also warn that actually if you get into a habit, because uh, sometimes I think it's a feeling that you're getting extra money. You're not. It means you've got less to spend later when you actually do get your, your real wages. However, I guess the other angle from yourselves on the principle, Nick, was it can get you out of a hole because occasionally little disasters happen. However, the, the other area of concern, and I guess say it's a personal view, is a £1.95 charge for having a £20 advance for two days before payday is actually an extremely high interest rate charge. Now, if uh, lots of employers out there, and there's some of the uh, early wage access schemes where the principle is there is no charge to the employee, the cost is all met by the employer if there is a cost. Now, that has more appeal to me than actually... Um, other way around that's just and they're very personal comments and that sort sure. of personal fears uh, having been a, a lay minister of religion of many a time I had to deal with people who've got into financial trouble to give a slight counterweight then um and I, by the way i i don't know where my position is on this so i don't have an agenda either way um obviously sure. i'm not the person processing payroll in this way uh, and we don't offer this within our business at the moment. Whether that changes in the future uh, is, is there to be seen. But I will say that uh, it struck me on the other side of the argument to keep a balance in, in the world of recruitment when, um, and, I, and I'm 
I should probably preface it slightly with, I think it can be more beneficial and more damaging from both sides of the coin for those that are really on the lower um, earning threshold here. And the, the, the people that are, are struggling sometimes week by week or living check by te- uh, paycheck by paycheck. But in this particular instance, I had a, a, a candidate um, who was looking for a position. Um, she had an interview, couldn't afford to go to pay the train fare to get to the interview because she was waiting until her paycheck came at the end of the month. Um, and I thought it was, for me, it was a, a situation I'd never considered before. And in that moment, I, we actually asked ourselves the question as recruiters, do we advance her the money in advance herself? Because she, you know, she has another interview here to get back into work, which she desperately needs, but doesn't get paid, even though her job had finished until the end of that month, had to wait another two weeks for the money. I think in that instance, it would have been really useful for her to have been able to get access to her wages that she'd earned in the way she looked at it, just to afford the, the train fare to get to the interview. So it was just an instance that... Uh, uh, as everyone's case by case, right? But it caught me from the other side of the situation. And I thought it was really interesting to be um, faced with that with that situation in that moment. Um, Andy, I've got you back again, which is Sorry great. It's yeah. a topical power, situation, power this. <laughs> I'd actually be um, really interested in your view here. Um, what are your views on, on early wage access? And um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get your, your take because it is a very personalized opinion on, on, on this at the moment. Um, um, I agree with basically what's been said. I think, yeah, there are times when people do need money because things have gone wrong, washing machine or car breaking down, and they don't have access because, yeah, the, the amount of income, the disposable income is low. But there's that great risk that they then are const- constantly having to use the access because they're always behind because they've had that debt, but then that's probably a lot cheaper than getting a payday loan to pay back. So financial advice is important. Is it so, it's so interesting, isn't it? I'm glad that they've changed all the rules around RTI and from a regular perspective, we're thinking just a minute, if you're getting your actual pay, that could become an assessment process requirement, you know, and, and so on, so from automatic enrollment. So it's good this it's more like a salary advance approach being taken. But I agree with Simon, I think. Is the um, employer picking up the bill? And what about pensioners? Will pensioners get access to their pension early? Is it, you know, it's not just wage, is it, what about pension? You know, I mean, oh, I don't know. And who would pay that? Would that be the scheme? Who would pay that if the scheme paid that? That would, that's the cost to the pension scheme. Would a trustee? I fully agree with Simon. The burden needs to be on the employer. I think if we're going to introduce, that's a mm. personal view again. Uh, and most importantly, I think financial education is imperative. Uh, we know there's mm. very, very close links between financial health and mental health, um, and there's a lot of studies being done on that. And I think, um, yeah, you know, the jury is out, and, and I'm open to being swayed either way at the moment. It sounds like our panel might be too. But um, yeah, watch this space. I think in, in terms of seeing how this develops. But but good on the CIPP for at least starting with a code of practice and guidelines. I think that's important for the industry. Mm. Right. Uh, for everybody, I'm going to jump into plug number three today. We don't usually do any plugs, and you've got the privilege of having three in one session. But this is really important, right, because I think that most people watching this, we've got almost 100 of you still online, are really passionate about raising the profile of payroll. We want to make it more strategic. Well, there's an opportunity to discover how. I'm going to be hosting um, – fifth webinar in the SD Works Foundation series. If you haven't caught the previous four, they're all available, uh, well, they're all going to be available on the Payroll Podcast and Audio. I think we've already released um, episodes one, two, and three. I think they're also available on the SD Works website. But the fifth one is all about the transformation of payroll into a strategic business 
must have. We're going to be talking about moving it from its traditional back office department into what is and what can be a dynamic and influential function that contributes to employee engagement over workplace experience. You know, there's an era right now marked with the cost of living crisis, recruitment difficulties, which I know a lot about, uh, and employee retention struggles. And I believe that payroll can have a huge impact uh, in really improving many of the difficulties and challenges being faced by businesses at the moment. I think payroll has never been more crucial. So if you also agree with some of that, I recommend you sign up for the webinar. It's completely free. I'm going to put a link in the chat in just a moment for those of you who want to sign up. Um, I'm going to be joined by Kat um, Bernadez from uh, Lace Partners, director there. And for those of you who probably already know, Bob Ray Hill as well, who's the founder of Centric, who's a, a real expert in some of these subjects. So please do join us. We're going to really talk about how we can unlock the hidden potential of payroll and how we can really improve its strategic function within businesses. So uh, it's part of a five-part series, as I mentioned. Um, please do sign up and join us. It's on Thursday, the 7th of December at 11 a.m., so hopefully you're all free. It'll last about an hour. So do join us for that. Right. Over to you, Andy. Now we have you back. We have a little bit of time left uh, to talk about the pensions updates, any recent cases, anything else we need to know from the autumn statement. Uh, you have the floor, sir. Please take us away. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, where shall I start? The, first of all, I guess the um, changes for next year, we'll, obviously we'll wait to see what DWP do regarding the thresholds for automatic enrollment, the lower upper thresholds and also the trigger point. Um, they review it every year. Um, obviously, NI has been frozen, upper upper and lower thresholds. So we'll see um, if the AE thresholds remain frozen. But obviously, the intention, as you will probably be aware from the 2017 review, is for the lower threshold to go down to zero and for the, for the age of automatic enrollment triggering going from 22 down to 18. And there'll be a consultation at some point soon, don't know when, down to DWP to publish it, which will be their thoughts on how those changes of going down from 22 to 18 and the lower threshold going to nil will be implemented and their timing. So please, power industry, feed into that if you want to make sure it's as straightforward as possible for from a payroll perspective. Watch that space. Um, I'm sure we'll be mentioning it, assuming it hasn't closed in January. Um, and then we'll get the feedback from DWP as to what the plan will be, um, particularly when it will be implemented, logically from a, a, a 6th of April date, from new tax year date. Um, won't be 2024. Will it be 2025, 2026? Let's see what the consultation says and what the feedback produces. Um, then, of course, the autumn statement. This is where Karen and I were having a wonderful think. Oh, dear me, how interesting. Um, so some of the things are, are consultations are being put forward. So one of the things is about people have small pots. They, you know, they've worked for a firm and then they've left and that they've got a little pension pot from that firm. They've got another firm. They leave. They've got another pension pot. How do you get? How do you deal with all these small pots? So they're looking at the government looking to introduce a or to authorise pension schemes to look into and act as consolidators for people who've got small pots under a thousand pounds. But probably the one which is very interesting from an employer perspective is consultation on having a lifetime pension pot whereby you change jobs, you've got your pension scheme, you go to your new employer and say, this is my pension scheme, please pay into it, employer. And um, 
and you could end up if you've got a lot of employees you could end up with a lot of different pension schemes so you need to feed into that consultation it's a big big change to the pensions industry as well um, in terms of how that would operate so the pension world will be feeding into that lifetime concept of one one scheme for whole of your lifetime um, which in a way helps understand how one if you have multiple pots you have to consolidate them potentially well this is just one pot so you won't it'll do with the multiple pot issue um, there's also a lot of value for money work that's going to be done. Master Trust will get reviewed. Master Trust being like now and S people's smart and so on. Um, five years since they were being authorized, so there'll be a review of those. But value for money is where, why we're saying if you, if a pension scheme doesn't offer value for money for the people, the savers, the members, then potentially we will close it down and move the pension members into a different scheme. So that's all tied into the autumn statement as well. Um, right. That's probably all. Karen, do you want to say anything? Only, <laughs> uh, can I just say I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I think to be fair, because this reminds me actually about the of, of Australia. So auto enrolment. They had that in Australia. I think they've got is it three schemes that employees can choose from. And I think, I suppose, I'm jumping the gun. I've not seen a consultation. If that consultation comes out whereby an employee can choose Tom, Dick and Harry, A, B and C as a pension scheme, I, you know, how do we know it's qualifying? How, do, how when do we take deductions? What did you know? You can see the whole raft of a goodbye AE, and I cannot see why a government would want to do that. So, I think if it is a sensible approach, similar to Australia, where there are three, but again, my worry is you know, how do these employees know that they're a good scheme? So, I think mm. there's a lot more to it. Um, and as you'll have noticed, Andy, I've calmed down slightly since the beginning of this call um, in that respect, if it's like the Australian one. If it's not like the Australian one and the UK does something that's absolutely bonkers, um, then I won't be a happy bunny at all. No. I don't well, think the pension industry will allow it to happen. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be very logical. Like this is for having an expert panel for when these consultations <laughs> materialise into actual results. We can sit here and talk about it for hours and guide people through them. But it sounds like you're going to be very busy in the new year, Andy, as these consultations continue. <laughs> um, we're, this is actually the last PQT until the new year. The next one's going to be the 25th of January 2024. Put it in your diaries now so you don't forget. It'll be our first one back from the new year. A couple of comments have come in. Uh, Karen just mentioned, uh, don't need comments on this, we're just going to read it out, but one pension scheme, that's not going to work for defined benefit schemes versus defined contribution schemes. Uh, we know it's going to be complicated. Karen is nodding. Uh, we've got this to get through in the new year for sure, but thank you for the comment there, Karen. DC related. And Diane made a really interesting point as well earlier in the show to say, had that second poll said holiday entitlement and not holiday pay, then the votes results would have been very different. Very, very fair comment as well. Um, and uh, one comment just popped in. Could employers be instead be obliged to transfer their prior pot to their new employer's pension? I think we're going to hold those questions till we know a little bit more from the consultations in the new year. But uh, come and join us, Andrew, again in the new year, and hopefully we can tackle that question oh, for you. Jan would be okay. good fun, I think. We'll have the Jan's AE consultation, yeah. 25th of July, we'll have all the answers for you. This is one opportunity now. I know it's been a little over time, so thank you, everyone, for staying with us. Huge thank you to Karen. Huge thank you to Andy. Huge thank you to Simon. Huge thank you to all of you for joining us today and staying with us for the just over 90 minutes. It's fantastic to have all of your questions, 
all of your input, all of your engagement. I'd like to wish everyone a fantastic festive period. Whatever you decide to do, I hope you get the rest and recuperation you very much need. And I look forward to welcoming you all back to Peril Question Time in January 25th, 2024. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, panel. And enjoy your festive period. Merry Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That's all for this episode of the Payroll Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and gained valuable insights and inspiration to advance your payroll career or your payroll operation. If you haven't already, please, please do subscribe to the show so you never miss a future episode. And if you found this podcast helpful, please take a moment to leave us a little review on your preferred podcast platform. It's your feedback that really helps me to improve the show and, of course, attract new listeners so we can continue to raise the profile of the payroll industry for all. Finally, if you know anyone who could benefit from this payroll podcast, please do share it with them. Let's spread the word and build a vibrant community of payroll professionals worldwide. Thank you, of course, for listening. My name is Nick Day. Please do look me up on LinkedIn and send me a connection request. In the meantime, I look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the Payroll Podcast real soon.